Here we go. Uh, this is, we got to start this way because it's a good rambunctious body, you know what I mean? So we got to start this way. So, he is risen. Uh, that was pretty good for a first one. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That was not good for a second one. The third one, full throttle, full throated, okay? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Not bad, but one more. Come on. You can do this better. You can do this, okay? Just all the way, okay? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Yeah, okay, that did it. <laughs> I love this family. All right. I'm so excited about the Easter message that I'm just going to dive right in if you guys don't mind, all right? So I, I want to do something. I want to ask a question. What if in the Old Testament there was a passage that we can absolutely scientifically verify happened way before Jesus? A couple of hundred years at a minimum and likely more like six or seven hundred years. But what if there was a passage in the Old Testament that we can absolutely verify was written before Jesus and yet it is basically an eyewitness account? I'm not talking about vague metaphors that kind of fit a situation like a horoscope does or, you know, just, just vagueness and all that. I'm talking about incredibly specific details like someone who was there would relate. Very particular things. What if there was a passage in the Old Testament that was an eyewitness account of his death, burial, and resurrection? Now, if you're a Christian and you hear that question, you say, well, of course there is because they're all over the Old Testament and so on. And everything else. And, and so I want you to do something as we go through this sermon today. If you know him, I want you to really be pondering the fullness of what's being said here by God. Because this is a challenge to all of us. If you are here and you don't know him, all the more so. Because in this instance, would it make a difference to you? If there really was an eyewitness account in a detailed way. The, the, the absolutely most plausible explanation is, is that somebody knew that that was going to happen and then made it happen. And so that opens up the possibility that somebody actually does know what's going to happen before it happens and that that might just be God, right? In fact, let me up the ante for you, okay? Let me take it to another level. What if there wasn't just an incredibly specific eyewitness account, but that right in the account was the depth of all of the meaning? literally summing up the whole of the Bible and its purposes and everything else in just a few words. What if right in the middle of this description was not just the what happened, but this incredibly deep why? Would that make a difference to you? In other words, if there's this eyewitness account and it really is God who was saying something and then he's telling you why he was saying it, would it make you think about it in a new way? All of this stuff, whether you believe it or not, right? I mean, if you're somebody who's skeptical about it, I get it, right? You want proof? Well, this is God doing that. In fact, he doesn't just stop there. He takes it all the way to the nth degree. He says this, it's not only that I'm going to give you a passage that is incredibly detailed. It's not only that I'm going to give you all of the why in it in this really rich way. But what if there's a passage that simply doesn't fit any other person in the whole of human history? any other moment, any other situation, anything. In fact, take Jesus out of history, and he's never to show up in history at all. There is no such thing as Jesus, and there never will be. Take him completely out, and these words cannot be applied to anybody else at any other time, in any other way. In fact, they, when you take Jesus out, they become nonsensical. They don't make any sense. They, they just don't fit anything. And yet, when you put Jesus into history, 
these words are just, they just explode with a richness of exacting fulfillment. Detail and why and every single thing about them. But in a way, again, that only one person, one moment, one situation in all of history could ever do. If there was a passage like that in the Old Testament, would it cause you to rethink? Like I say, this isn't just a sermon for people that don't know the Lord. This is a sermon for people that do to recalibrate again, to take a moment and say, you know, I've known him, but I've become somewhat familiar with him. That's what we do as Christians, right? Because he's so relational. And, 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 and I realize if you don't know him that you don't know that. But if you do know him, you realize how relational he becomes. And you just become almost, you know, just very familiar and almost relaxed and everything else. And all of a sudden, there's this moment that calls us back into the richness, the fullness, the incredibleness, the, the depths of what it is that God did for us. And it resets us back on a firmer foundation. That's what we're going to do today. For those of us who know him and for those of us who don't, we're going to try and set us onto a firm foundation, one that is verifiable. So with that in mind, we have an elder here, John Yahokowski, and he is going to pray for us and lift up another church today, John. Thank you very much. Lord, we just thank you for just this rich day that you've given us, Lord. Uh, every day is, is beautiful, but today we're just honoring uh, we're recognizing that your uh, ascension, uh, your, um, your death and resurrection. And so, Lord, we pray right now that today we would know you um, anew. Lord, that what you have for us uh, would be rich and that we would be uh, empowered as a result of it, Lord. Thank that you. we would be able to follow you in new and deep ways. Thank you. And so, Lord, we also just uh, lift up Eastside Foursquare today. And, Lord, Amen. I pray that you would um, do the same there. Lord, basically every church, Lord, that is meeting and honoring you today, Amen. Lord, I pray that they would be just um, enlivened and in, enriched and um, just filled with your Holy Spirit. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That was a great way to go with that, John. Thank you very much. All right. Now, I, I want to do something here, and I want to show you that we're going to be looking at one particular passage, but I do want to show you that this prophecy stuff is all over the place. I mean, this idea that in the Old Testament, God talked about Christ, there's, there's as many, depending on how you want to count them and what you're going to accept and not accept, there's as many, there's over a thousand times in the Old Testament that's referring in some fashion to Christ in a way that he fulfills. And I just want to show you a couple of them just to give you some sense of them. Here's one, Psalm 22, this is David. And, and he writes, they divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. Now, there's no record of David having ever experienced anything like that. I'm not saying he didn't, and I'll get to that in a second, but there's no record of that. And yet, when Jesus is dying and he's at the cross, this is just a moment. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes amongst the four of them. They took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. I mean... You know, this is not horoscope stuff. This is not vague generalities that could fit a certain circumstance and maybe a few others too, okay? This is, you know, they didn't rip the clothes apart. They threw dice for it, and there it is, right? Here's another really good one, okay? All right, so this is Zechariah. He's a prophet hundreds of years before Christ. I said to them, if you like, give me my wages, whatever I'm worth, but only if you want to. So they counted, so they counted out for my wages 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, this magnificent sum at which they valued me. Now understand, 30 pieces of silver for what was going on was nothing. 
It's a sarcastic statement. He's saying they valued me at a whole 30 cents. Okay, that would be the sort of sense of the word here. Okay, this magnificent sum which they valued me. So I took the 30 coins and threw them to the potter in the temple of the Lord. Now watch this, okay? So what happens is there's this guy, Judah, who's with Jesus, and he begins to think other things. And so he goes in and he says, look, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? Now, the religious leaders give him 30 pieces of silver. You know, you'd have thought somebody in the religious leaders would have said, let's give him 29 or 31. <laughs> Wouldn't you think that? I mean, somebody, you know, come on, 30? You know, didn't somebody say 30 pieces of silver? Where have I heard that before? Right? You know? Okay, now not only that that happens, but this, this gets even more incredible because what happens is, is that when Judas sees that he's going to be crucified, Jesus, he comes back into the temple and he says, I don't want this money, and he throws it at them just like it says. Throws it to them. And they say, now watch where they draw their line here. They're willing to kill Jesus, but you know, they say about the money, look, we can't put that in the coffer because it paid for someone's crucifixion and death. It's blood money, so we can't take it for this. So what should we do with it? And they go... Well, let's go buy the potter's field, right? <laughs> now, once again, somebody says, let's not do the potter's field. <laughs> you know, let's do another field, okay? You don't, you remember this prophecy? Let's not fulfill it completely, guys, right? And then, of course, what happens is, is that Judas himself hangs himself. And when he's cut down, he falls on the ground, and his guts spill out. They call it the field of blood. And even to this day, they say that. Now, now, I want to do something here, though, right? So those two prophecies, pretty incredible. I could go on and on. I could do many, many, many sermons on this. But I'm just doing a couple of them. But I want to do something here. I want to take a skeptical attitude to this, all right? I want to take the attitude of somebody saying, is this really Jesus fulfilling this? Or is it just somebody that heard about something that happened long ago and it happened to Jesus, too? Because, see, we could say that David did actually have a time when they would have taken his garments and not rent them but cast dice for them. We could say that. And Zechariah, this is actually an instance where Zechariah goes through this experience. God is having him go through it so that in a prophetic way, he'll show him things about Jesus. But the, but the bottom line is this is an actual experience that he's relating. Now, the, the rabbis, the scholars of the day understood that it was about Messiah ultimately, so they understood it was looking forward. But there is a guy that went through this, and we could just say, well, the people in Jesus' time, they just appropriated it for their own purposes. See, they just, right? You know, I mean, this is, it happened then, it happens now. Oh, look, it's a fulfillment. See what I mean? But it happened then, and it didn't really mean that. We could skeptically say that. Now, I want to say something. This passage that we're going into will go way beyond that to where there isn't any way to explain it away like that. In fact, there are many times in the Old Testament where prophecies are given that simply cannot be explained away except by Christ. But there are many others that you could be skeptical about and do that with them. And so much so that we have this really interesting book in the Bible. It is very arguably the most incredible book in all the Bible. It's Isaiah. And the reason why Isaiah is so incredible is because it has this mountain of prophecies in it. It's 66 chapters of prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in very specific ways. The kinds of things where this king is going to rise up and this king is going to do this. And even before a king is born, there's going to king rise up by the name of Cyrus and here's what he's going to do. And sure enough, then a king rises up by the name of Cyrus and here's what he does. Now, people in the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, scholars, academics, they look at this stuff and they say, you know, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not a God. But the point is, is, you know, God doesn't prophesy. This doesn't happen. 
This is just not possible. It's not possible that somebody should tell you in great detail. There's Nostradamus who uses all kinds of flowery language, and then you can interpret it and make it fit. There's all kinds of stuff like that in the world, but there's not this kind of specificity. Cyrus and stuff, that's not real. What really happened was, see, is that people got a hold of this document, and there was this guy, Isaiah, and we get it, and what they did is they took his letter, and what they did is he, they added in this guy Cyrus's name over here looking like it was prophetic, and then over here looking like it was fulfilled. See, it happened, in other words, they added words to the book after it had happened. That's what the academics said. Now, this became a full frontal attack on God, his nature, his character, his existence, everything about him. So much so that in the early 1940s, if you did not believe that there were between three to 600 authors of Isaiah, that book, amongst all of the books of the Bible, that book was under attack. And they were trying to disprove every single part of it. And if you did not believe that there was three to 600 authors of Isaiah, you could not get a seat in any major religious institution in the world. Because that's what the smart people felt. That's what the smart people thought. That's what our rigorous academic exercise has brought us to. And then 1946 came. And some guys were throwing something on a fire. <laughs> wow. And, they were, and somebody looked at what they were throwing on the fire because it was this leathery stuff. And they said, well, there's writing on this. And this looks fairly ancient. And they said, quit throwing that on the fire. <laughs> They've been burning it, by the way, for weeks. But they still found what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they found tons of information in the Dead Sea Scrolls. All kinds of religious material, all kinds of different parts of the Bible and everything else. But interestingly, I think God did the most amazing thing with the Dead Sea Scrolls, because here's what he did. Most of those theories about people adding stuff to had come somewhere between 150 to the time of Christ. In other words, people were writing dissertations and getting chairs at universities by writing dissertations about the fact that, you know, this person added this at about 92 AD, and here's who the particular person was, and here's what he was doing. And everybody would go, oh, isn't that wonderful? Isn't he smart? And he's so clever, and he figured this out, and now this got added. And then they would give him a chair, and he'd be able to teach other people the nonsense that he was thinking. Well, in 1946, they discover the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it turns out the only book of the Bible that they found in its entirety was Isaiah, the one that was under the most attack. This is the very beginning of it, but this is the entire book right here. Now, it goes left to right, so I want you to see upper right-hand corner is the beginning of that book, and then it goes, I mean, right to left. It goes that way, see that? So it goes that way, and then here's the next section, here's the next section, and that is all 66 books of Isaiah. Note that we're missing a little bit of information, not very much, but we're missing a little bit of information up there towards the beginning of the book, but when you start getting into the major parts of it, and when you get into the part that we're into, look at this, we've got basically full-on copies. See that? And here's what they discovered. There wasn't a word that was different. All those papers, all those dissertations about how people had added things was all nonsense because they radiocarboned this stuff. And they also used all the other techniques that we use. And they came to the conclusion that, that, that the best evidence was it was at least, it was somewhere around 225, 225 years before Christ. This piece of paper. And this was a copy from another letter, is how they do it, right? But the point is this particular letter. And by the way, the latest research that just came out about it, they've been testing it still. And they use all kinds of stuff. They use language and they use ink compositions. Think about CSI. These guys are CSI on steroids. Okay? They can tell a fake. 
right? And so they do all of this testing in order to figure it out. And scientifically, we're closer to now 300 years before Christ that this document is verifiably, scientifically from. And again, the point is, it was exactly the same text that people in 1945 were reading <laughs> and that we read to today. It's a little bit more like the Constitution, right? If somebody came along and just said, you know, I'm just going to add a little something because I got an agenda and I want to make something happen. I'm just going to add something in there. If somebody came along and did that, what would people say? You can't do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can try and pass an amendment or do something, but you can't just add into it. Well, this is a religious text that people carried deep and close to themselves, and they did not allow this kind of stuff. And what we see in this whole thing is the incredible fidelity of the text, the incredible way in which they kept it the same. I mean, there's literally like two words difference between here and there, and they're both conjunctions. That's it. Okay? So what we want to say is the stuff that we're about to read in Isaiah was clearly, scientifically proven to be. A couple hundred to three hundred years written before that and really coming from a writer who was probably more like six or seven hundred years. See? But we know that for certain. And the reason why this becomes so important to us is because it's in the book of Isaiah that God keeps making a particular point. And here's the point that he makes. I'm the only one that can tell you what's going to actually happen before it does. Because I'm the one that makes it happen. <laughs> I can tell you the end from the beginning because I am in the end and I am in the beginning. I got the whole thing laid out. It's me that does it. So I can tell you exactly what it is and it comes to pass in eyewitness detail with all of the meaning and in a way that only fits because I'm the one that does that. <laughs> in fact, he does it four or five times in the book, which is again why it's so interesting it was under attack. Because I want you to think about the mentality, and God's going to address the same mentality that we had in those academics that he was facing back then. But watch this. About four or five times he says something along these lines. Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there's no one like me, none like me, none. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. <laughs> see that I'm in control I really am in actual control <laughs> right you may think that stuff happens and it may be somewhat outside of my grasp but it isn't see that's the thing of faith that he's saying here now watch though see he's got the same problem with the skepticism the academic the prove it to me which by the way he's doing right here he's proving it people will say all the time if God would just prove it I would believe Isaiah is a book where God was proving it, and that's exactly what he was saying about it. I proved myself, and you still didn't believe. In fact, he says it this way. We're getting into the last third of the book, and that's why that's, it's really important to note that, because the first two-thirds of the book have a whole lot to do with kings and nations and stuff of Isaiah's time. But when you get to the last third of the book, he totally shifts what he's talking about, and what he goes to is, he's starting to talk about, well, look, watch. Long ago, I told you it was going to happen. Then suddenly, I took action, and all my predictions came true. For I know how, but that's what he says, but I know how stubborn and obstinate you are. He says, stiff-necked and hard-headed. I know how you are. Now watch. 
That is why I told you what would happen. I told you beforehand what I was going to do. Then you would never be able to say, my idols did it. And that was a big problem in his day, right? The, the ancient problem was, is people said, oh, it was this other God that did it. We played to Mordok or we, you know, we, Baal or whatever. We prayed to this other God and he's the one that did it. God said, no, I'm the one that did it because I told you I was going to do it. And then I did it. <laughs> See? So that was the problem he was dealing with. But now watch this. He knows the modern problem too, and he's speaking to a modern audience. In fact, he's speaking to us right now, today, about this. Because watch where he goes. See? You have heard my predictions and seen them fulfilled, but you refuse to admit it. That's that academic skepticism. There are still people who will say things about Isaiah, even though you can't say it. <laughs> it it's not true. Well, there's not very many. Like I say, a whole bunch of dissertations just flew out the window. Nobody ever got fired for it, interestingly, but whatever, okay? You refuse to admit it. But now here's what he does in this last third of the book. He says, you know what? I really do want to prove it to you. And not just to you, the people in Isaiah's time, but all the way to us. Right now, today, he's saying, now I will tell you new things. In this last third of Isaiah, he starts talking about the first part of it goes into stuff that's going to happen after Isaiah. And then he goes into this several chapter long exposition about Christ. And then he goes into this, the final part of the book has to do with what's going to happen in the end times. And here's what he's saying to a modern audience. Consider whether or not this is true. If I told you it was going to happen and then it actually did happen and I told you what it meant, maybe that's what it means. And if you don't believe it, it doesn't matter because it's still going to happen. And it'd be better to have an understanding about what it means than not. I will tell you new things, secrets you have not yet heard. And I'm telling you, what he reveals here in Isaiah, particularly this chapter that we're looking at, but in other places right here, he reveals things that he's never talked about before. Not at all. I'm not saying there wasn't some hints to it, but he talks about what those hints mean. We get all the way back in the very beginning, we get this separation that takes place and, and you know, we're in the garden and, and what happens is, is that we make our choice. God never wanted us to be forced to have a relationship with him. He always wanted us to choose it. That's his desire. That is his plan. That's the only way that you will ever come to him is that you will choose to believe him. He will not force you to believe him. Okay? And so what he's done is, is that he said all the way back there, we have this little prophecy, you know, right there at the very beginning, where what happens is, is that Eve gets deceived, and then Adam goes along with it, and then he says, look, from this woman is going to come a seed. Now, you're going to crush a singular seed. There's a whole lot of seed that came out of Eve, right? I mean, that's us, right? But he said this one particular seed is going to come, and Satan, you're going to bruise his heel. We're going to look at that today in some fairly gory detail. I'll try and warn you when those images come up. But, but you're going to have this bruised heel, but he's going to be crushing your head. While you're bruising his heel, he's going to be crushing your head. Now, what does that mean? We're just about to read a passage that explains exactly what that means in a depth and a detail that it's a new thing. That's what God's saying. They are brand new, not things from the past. So we're going to head into Isaiah now, okay? Now, I want to do this because I want to keep this to where it's, it's uh, whenever you see this gold band down here, this is the, the words of Isaiah chapter 53 in order. I haven't skipped a word. I haven't left anything out. I haven't done anything. I've just put them right in order. But I didn't want to put Isaiah up there every time, 51, you know, all that kind of stuff. Okay, so it's in your notes and you can follow along and so on. But the bottom line is, who's believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? What's he saying right there? 
Just give me a guess. What's he saying? He's saying, I want you to think about what I'm about to say. I want you to ponder it. I want you to consider it. Because if you do, it's going to make a difference. Now, are you really going to believe it? That's still up to you. But I'm going to reveal it. See? I'm revealing my powerful arm to you. Are you going to believe? That's what he's saying right there. See, we're going to dissect this a little bit. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in the ground. We're going to take it apart a little bit. My servant. In Isaiah, in the beginning chapters of the book, he talks about my servant, and it means Israel sometimes. Sometimes it means Isaiah himself and so on. But when he gets to this last third of the book, he's saying, my servant kept messing up. My servant Israel didn't believe me. My servant here didn't do this right. My servant here didn't do this right. But when he gets into this last third of the book, he starts talking about my servant as one to come, the Messiah. That one whose head's going to get crushed. That, the one that God is sending to redeem mankind from the separation that has taken place at the garden by our choice. Not his, by ours. We chose to go our own way. We were separated from him. But then there's going to come another person, and he's going to be my servant, and he's going to get it exactly right. So that's who my servant is, and he grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot. Now that's a big problem. Here's why. It's very clear in Isaiah that this servant, this Messiah to come, this, this thing, this person that's going to come is God, not just a man. It's very clear. This is, Isaiah is the one that says there's this virgin girl here and there's a nerd term fulfillment because she's a young woman who has a thing and it fulfills a prophecy right there in Isaiah's time. But then it says something. It says My, this, this young girl who's a virgin is going to have a child and we're going to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's out of Isaiah. That's only one of the passages where he clearly says the Messiah is not just a person, it's God. God himself. See? So over and over, Isaiah has said that, there's, that the Messiah is going to be God. So here's what the problem is. How does he grow up in front of the Lord? How does God, who ever was, was at the beginning, was at the end, how does he grow up? <laughs> There's lots of people that call them God. I lived in Venice Beach. There was all kinds of people that said they were God. There's lots of people throughout history that have said they were God. Here's the problem. They're all feeding dandelions. They died. The thing about God that makes him God is, is that he was in the beginning and he will be in the end. He always is, always will be. Right? So if you turn into worm food at some point in time, the whole test about God thing is sort of over. Okay? You're done. Right? So how does God, who is eternal, grow up, spring up? How does he do that? How, how, seriously, how does he do that? <laughs> it's an eyewitness account. He's talking about this Messiah. How does he do that? Well, this is an image from the Passion. That's Joseph and that's Mary. And what we've been told through Scripture is, is that that Mary gave birth to, it wasn't Joseph's seed that impregnated her, that it was God bringing a new life. By the way, look at this. He's a tender green shoot in dry ground. In scripture, whenever you're talking about dry, what it means is death. Dry always means death, because a lack of water is death, right? You, can't, you can go without food for days and days and days and days. You can't go very long at all without water. See, water is life. And so in the Bible, life is always this water. And what he's saying is there's going to be this new life, this new kind of life that's going to be shooting up from what is otherwise dry ground. See, we don't think of ourselves, particularly if we don't know the Lord, we don't think of ourselves as dead. 
right? Because, I mean, after all, like, we're walking around. <laughs> we know the difference between somebody who's laying in the ground and somebody who's still walking on top of it, right? But there is this issue. And what the Scripture says is, is that when we made a choice to go our own direction, when we made a choice to go some other way, when we made that choice, we disconnected ourselves from the one who was life. In other words, God said, I want to have a relationship with you, and I'm the one who created you, and I'm capital L life. And there's like this umbilical cord connection of life that's flowing into the person that keeps them alive. See that? And then what happens is, is that at some point in time, he says, you don't have to have this. And if you want to go your own way, you can. And we do. And when we do, we like sever that cord. So what we do is understand something. The reason why we live about 120 years, we used to live longer than that. But the reason why we live 120 years is because God says, you know, after 120 years, if, you're never, if you haven't chosen me, you're never going to choose me. So I'm going to give you a certain amount of time to choose me. And then you've made your choice. I'm not going to force you. That's important. Think about that. You've made your choice. And if you don't know him, that's an important thing to hear. But if you do know him, that's an important thing to hear. Because those choices keep coming, don't they? Are you going to choose to do it God's way, or are you going to choose to do it your way? Is there anybody in here that's always, that's every single decision, right? You're like, you don't know him. You don't know him at all. And yet, and you can stand here and, and with all integrity say, I have every single choice I've ever made in the entirety of my life has been completely and utterly the right one. I don't believe in God, so it's not the God one, but the right choice, the one that I knew to be the right thing to do. Is there anybody who's done that? Anybody? Well, the Bible says that that's us choosing to go our own way instead of the better way. The way that we had a sense of that would have been better. But, you know, for all these myriad of reasons, we end up choosing going this way. And when we do, what it's saying is, is that we're being disconnected from life. So we walk around as hollow shells, and, and trust me, I, I say it as hollow shells because when I accepted the Lord, life became technicolor. It went from black and white and gray to magnificent color. There was a movie that was done at one point in time that tried to reverse that very order. It was a Jim Carrey movie, and, and, right? And it was about the fact that when people, uh, you know, chose to do sex, and that, that's when life came alive and technicolor it was gray and black and white until then. That's just, a, that's just, it's exactly the opposite way around. And I can say that as can all the other people in this room because you know what life was like before and after. And before it was one-dimensional and it was a certain thing and you didn't even know that there was something else out there. And then you accept him and all of a sudden you go, oh my gosh, there's this whole other thing out there. Now that's what's being communicated when he says he's coming up like a tender green shoot, like a root in the ground. And you may say, I don't know if I read all that into there, Kurt, but I'm just preparing you for words that are to come that are much more specific about all of this, okay, so that I don't have to explain it over and over. But this is the idea, there's a new kind of life that's coming into the world that really is connected to God, okay, all right, now, there was nothing beautiful and majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. No, we're taking our images from The Passion, the movie The Passion. And I do want to say that some of it's pretty gory, as I've said. But, you know, there is one thing that they kind of got wrong. Almost only one thing. I mean, they got so much of it right in that movie. It's incredible. But, but this is Jim Caviezel, and he may not be Brad Pitt or George Clooney, but he's not that hard on the eyes, right? <laughs> you know? So, I mean, Hollywood just, you know, they, old Mel Gibson couldn't pull the trigger all the way and just get somebody who really was pretty plain looking. You know what I mean? But I want to see, I want to show you something. What, what Mel Gibson couldn't do, God, in fact, did. Jesus could have come, and, and the way that we would do it, see, if, if we were God, we would say, well, have him be really attractive. 
Because people are attracted to attractive people, <laughs> right? So make them really beautiful, right? What's the problem with that? It distances us from them. It makes them better than us. Jesus is the one who took no advantage of anything. In fact, what it says is he emptied himself of all of his godly attributes that he might walk as one of us, and then he came in a manger. He didn't have the advantage of privilege of any kind, of any shape, of any form. In any dimension did he not have this. What he, he was born in a manger, and he can relate to the person in Bangladesh, to the person in the deepest sub-Sahara Africa that is, in the, that is in the most grotesque kind of poverty. This, he is one of them. He did not distance himself in any way, shape, or form from us by being more pretty, more beautiful, attractive in a way that was distancing. You see it? What God is saying is, I came to be with you. I came to be part of you. I came to be one of you. So we'll forgive Jim Caviezel for being handsome, I guess, all right? He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Let's, let's take this apart just a little bit, okay? Let's, let's look at this one right here. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Uh, there's a book out right now called Killing Jesus, and it, it tries to make this point in one part of it. Now, he may make the opposite point later on, in which case, I expect that he probably does, and so it's probably a wonderful book. But I heard him interviewed. I haven't read the book. It's brand new. But he, I heard him interviewed, and here's what he said. He said, actually, there was only a few people that killed Jesus. That is categorically false. During his lifetime, there were only a few people that were opposed to him. But at the end, it was everybody. He dies completely alone. Think about it now. See, during his lifetime, he was celebrated by the crowds. Thousands of people coming, right? Why? What was he doing? Was he trying to aggrandize himself whatsoever in any way, shape, or form? No. Here's what he was doing. He was healing people that were sick. He was delivering people that were possessed. He was feeding people miraculously with nothing. He was doing all kinds of things, all kinds of miracles. He was just giving to people all this stuff. And of course, everybody was really into him, <laughs> right? He made our bellies full and he made us well, right? So, of course, he had huge crowds. But there is a scripture in John where John says about Jesus, he did not give himself to anyone because he knew what was in us. He knew that in the end, it wasn't actually about him and it wasn't actually the way that we think it is. And see, I'd like to think of myself, I'm a Christian now. I, I didn't, wasn't a Christian for much of my life and, and I, you know, I didn't care about it. I thought it was all nonsense and just stupid and silly and ridiculous. And, and then, like I say, one day, you know, I was saying a prayer with Julie, and the only reason I was saying it, I don't want to go into the whole thing, but I was saying a prayer with Julie, and I, that's the first prayer I ever played my whole life, and it was just a nonsensical prayer. It was literally, God, if you're there, would you please see us as married? And I probably shouldn't have said that, because now I've got to explain that, but I'm not going to, okay? If you want to hear about it, <laughs> listen to some other sermon or come talk to me or whatever. But, but that was my prayer. It was, my first prayer was, God, if you are there. That was it. And I did not believe that he was there. I just couldn't figure out anything else to do for what we were trying to do at the moment, right? Bottom line, okay? Sorry, I'm a sinner, okay? And what happened was, is somebody was there. He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. And I was completely shocked. I had no thought whatsoever that he was there in any way, shape, or form. But all of a sudden, it was as clear to me that he was right there as it was that Julie was right there. Absolutely that clear to me. I just went, oh, <laughs> whoa. 
And I like to think that because of that thing that opened my life and that I've now spent decades in searching him and, and in studying and in preaching and in learning and in growing and, and, you know, just this incredible thing that has happened ever since in my life in Technicolor and then some, you know what I mean? It's full Dolby and 3D and the whole nine yards, right? But the bottom line is I like to think that I would be somebody who wouldn't have turned my back on him. This is Isaiah saying we turned our backs on him and he looked the other way. He was a spies and we did not care. You do realize there's four gospel writers and two of them are actual eyewitnesses and two of them are relating the stories of eyewitnesses to everything that happened. And you do realize that all four of those gospel writers as disciples of Jesus Christ, the ones that walked with him and saw all of it, every single one of them relates that they turned their back on him. Peter most dramatically in denying him three times. We, not the Jews, not the religious leaders, everybody, the entire crowd, Pontius Pilate tries to release Jesus. He says, I'll give you, you know, here's Barabbas, you know him, this is a bad dude, notorious criminal. And I can release one person in a year, and I think you guys are trying to get after this Jesus guy, and I can't see why. So you know what? I'll make him, I'll get him loose. You guys, you want me to release Barabbas, a guy you know to be scum of the earth, or do you want me to release Jesus? If obviously figuring they're going to do Jesus. What do they do? The crowds do this. Release Barabbas. Crucify him. Pilate still didn't want to do it, but the crowd was so violent against Christ at that moment in time that he feared that they would riot. And so he released Christ to them to be crucified. This is a little bit of that. And again, this is a little gory. I told you I'll tell you when they get gory and so you can close your eyes if you're going to be offended by this. But I do want to say these are in the words and we're going to get to it, but, but take a look. That's Peter. He didn't come to his rescue. He didn't speak out. He didn't say, you're accusing him of something that's not true. Here's a good guy. I'll testify for him. Now, this is the religious students. And they say, we're taking him away now, taking him to Pilate. But now look at what the people start to do. I have a question for you. Why are they beating on him? Why are they beating him? There's actually a bit of a technical answer that I don't want to go into, but let's just be really clear. Just a few days before this, they were holding up palm branches celebrating this healer, feeder guy coming in, and now they're violently beating him. I like to think that I wouldn't be the person that would be violently beating him. But I can tell you, I know I'm no better than the disciples, and I know that I would not have stood up for him. I say that, and God, I hope that's not actually true. There actually are a lot of people now with the Holy Spirit inside of us that have stood up for Christ at the cost of their lives. All of the disciples, for example, who got it wrong right then in that moment, but got it right the second time around. And throughout history, there have been many, many, many people who have given their lives for the testimony knowing that they were going to be killed, but they held on to it. So maybe there is hope for us, right? 
But what I wanted us to see is a man of sorrow is acquainted with deepest grief. Can I just kind of go to the deepest part of this? Because there's a whole lot in here. But let me just say it this way. This is God who stands before the people that he made <laughs> who are now rejecting him. It's, it's terrible that the religious leader is the one that should have said, hey, guys, this is God, the one fulfilled. You know, Zechariah and all that stuff. All, all these prophecies about him, this is him. Here he is. That's what they should have been saying. Instead, the religious leaders were saying, crucify him. And us too. And understand, you see why this is so grieving to God. Why did he make us in the first place? Why are we here? Why is there a creation, a universe? Why is that? Why does that exist? It's simple. The Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit are in this relationship with one another of love that is so incredible, that is so wonderful, that is so joyous, that there is just this explosion of love that God does, this big bang of love that just spreads out and he makes all kinds of other stuff so that that can be one with him and they can be one with one another, that everybody, all else can be one with one another and one with him that they can experience this love, this joy, this connection, this depth of connection. You see it? This is what he's doing. And instead what they're doing is they're rejecting him completely. A man of sorrow is acquainted with the deepest grief. He made us to be one with us. And now he stands before us as we say crucify our creator. <laughs> Wasn't pointing at you for any reason, Zach. That's a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. Yet it was for our weaknesses. Yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. I, I've said something to you. I've said, I'm going to show you that this only fits Jesus. I want to say that to some extent, some of the things we've said about Jesus already, we could kind of say, well, it might fit somebody else. You do realize that in human history, there have been these really incredible people that have carried the burdens of other people. They've come in a moment of weakness of other people. Martin Luther King was one who's just outstanding about this. At a time in which people were afraid to do this and there was a, a, a ridiculous thing that was going on with him and so on, Martin Luther King was one that came and, and they were weak and he was carrying that and he's, are the sorrows of the oppression, the sorrows of what happened came upon him. And so we could say, you know, in images like this, by the way, there's something that strikes me about this picture. You see what those are? Those are German shepherds. The same guard dogs that Nazi persecutors were using to keep the Jews in line in the concentration camps. Isn't that interesting? It's not even a, it's not even a generation away. And now we're using them on other human beings <laughs> to keep them down. Funny, right? In a, wow, like a horrible, disgusting way. But the point is, is we do have figures in human history that could fulfill some of these kinds of things we're talking about, not even all of what we've just done. But I just want to say, at this moment in time, we're now going to cross the threshold over into things that only are Christ. In fact, let me just kind of start it here and, and just show you, this isn't really, but I just want to say, when we talk about somebody carrying burdens and being weighed down with sorrows, there is a pretty literal way of understanding that. Now, if you don't know what the cross means, and you're going to know it in a minute here, but if you don't know, but that is him carrying our weaknesses, and that is him being weighed down by our sorrows. That is him picking up our cross. The one that Jesus, the one that God the Father gave to him to carry for us on our behalf. That's him carrying. That's a pretty literal way of fulfilling it. We can say whether somebody else might have done that in some sense. Clearly, this is him doing that in this sense, okay? Let's go on. 
because this is where it gets unbelievable. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. I want to tell you something. The whole of the Bible, everything that it's about from the first page to the last, exists right there in those words. Everything that it's about. Right there. Let me just break it apart for you a little bit. We thought his trouble were a punishment from God, a punishment for our own sins. This is Jesus up on the cross, and there's criminals there and so on. I need to tell you that there's a person, this is a little side story, but it's important. There's a person who used to do custodial at this church for us and that many people in this church absolutely love, still do. And this is just a, you know, just love him. And in, in September of 2011, he was accused by somebody of doing something that got him arrested. And when he got arrested, we all looked at it. And we just went, is it possible that he actually did this thing that he's being accused of? It doesn't matter what he did. I mean, it doesn't matter what that is. It's not important for the story. But I just want to say that, that when that happened, that we had to look and say, is this true? And, and we looked at it very carefully. And we looked at the person that was making the accusation. And this person had a history of doing things like this. And this is the kind of person that they were. And this is the kind of thing that people in their, their her situation and so on would do and everything else and all this kind of stuff. And we just became totally convinced that, that genuinely, if you just thought about it, knowing him, knowing his character, all that kind of stuff, knowing her and everything else, this is the, the preponderance of the evidence was clearly that this person was completely innocent. And he got arrested in October of 2011. And our great hope is, is that he will go to trial next week. This is April of 2013. He has been in jail for something there's every reason to think he didn't do. For 18 months. And, you know, we're supposed to have a speedy hearing, right? He could have posted bail, but it was quite a high bail because of the nature of the thing. And, and there wasn't anybody who was willing to do it. We tried but we couldn't get anybody to do the bail. And, and so he sits in there. He could have got, you know, a rich white person, bottom line, would have been able to pay the bail and gotten out and waited for the trial. This person is sitting in jail, going to court, hearing after hearing after hearing, where, where public defenders who were way overworked and simply don't have the time to work on it and do the, do the proper things. And we've tried to hire private ones, but they won't let them in and all this kind of stuff. And he goes before, and he has a right to a speedy trial. And he says, I want my speedy trial. And the, and the judge says, your public defender tells me they don't know anything about it, and you're sure to be convicted if they can't defend you. So I'm telling you, you can't have it. This has been going on for 18 months. Now, I'm about to tell you the reason why I'm telling you this story, but I can't move on without us saying a quick prayer together, okay? So would you join me in prayer? Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we come before your throne right now, and we ask you that you would do something right now, and that is that you would, if this man is innocent, that you would set him free and do so quickly. Exonerate him completely. Even have this other person recant and have it be totally clear so that there's not a doubt in anybody's mind. And we're asking you that justice be done. If he did do it, we would ask that justice be done here too. We don't believe that to be the case, and so we ask for freedom. But God, you're the one that actually knows. You're the only one that actually knows, except maybe those two people. But in Jesus' name, God, we come. We know that there are injustices in the world where innocent people do get put in prison. We know that it happens. We know that there are guilty people who go free. 
we are begging you that that not be the case here. And that you would end this travesty, this tragedy, this horrific thing that has happened to this person. And that you would cause a full-on redemption and resurrection in every way because of it. And that's what this body comes before you and asks. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. And thank you for that. But let me just tell you, the reason why I put this up here is because I really believe that he's innocent and I believe that this is just a tragedy in every way. But I want to tell you something. I want to show you human nature. He's been in there for 18 months and it's just almost inconceivable. Our brains cannot handle a person having such a travesty happen to them and not have it be true somehow. If I think about it, I know it's not true. But when I think about an injustice, my mind wants to run to fairness, and it seems like it must be true. And I want to say that that's exactly what's happening right here on this cross. He's being crucified with two criminals. He must be a criminal. <laughs> he must have done something wrong. Okay, he must have done something wrong. Tell me what he did wrong. The only thing that he's actually getting put up on the cross for was because he said he actually is God. He said, I am. That's why he's getting put on that cross. And if he really is God, then he shouldn't be on the cross. <laughs> now, if he really isn't, okay, we can argue about that, right? But what else did he do wrong? Nobody anywhere ever in all of history has been able to come up with anything that he did wrong. To the contrary, what they found is it's the one human being in all of human history that did make every single decision right. That chose to go God's way every single time in fullness. Even unto his own death which, by the way, he tried to get out of. And I'll get to that in one second. But I just want to say, see, it wasn't, he's not up there because of him, but he did. He's up there because of what we did. <laughs> it was our choice is why he's up there. That's what this is saying. This is Isaiah written hundreds of years before explaining why Christ has to die, why God himself has to die for us. Because do understand, when Jesus is on that cross, that's God. God is taking the punishment that was due us. God is taking the consequences due us. God is saying the penalty for sin is death. What does that mean? It means being disconnected from the spirit who is life. It means we walk around as this thing until we die. And if we've made a decision to go with him, then we are eternally with him. We have this life that is in us that lasts. If we do not, then we do not. There's an entirely different result for that. There's an entirely different thing that happens. And what he's saying is, is that what was, was due us. And so this is what Christ is experiencing, death. The death that was due me, he's experiencing. Not only was it death, but here's one of these details I say, eyewitness details. He was pierced for our rebellion. Okay? That's not a metaphor. This is John. Oh, sorry, gory picture. I should have warned you. Okay? That's, a, that's him on the cross and a spear going into his side and I took it at a place that wasn't particularly gory because it gets much worse, okay? But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. Now, I understand what's being said here. See, it's just about to be Passover. They say, take him down before Passover. They go to the two criminals that are being crucified with him. They're not dead yet. So they break their legs. So now they slump down even more into the crucified position and they drown in their own fluids in a matter of short period of time as opposed to being able to keep themselves up because once, once their legs are broken, they're hanging. See what I mean? So they die quickly. But when they come to Jesus, he looks as if he's dead. But was he really? Can I just tell you, the Romans were a very efficient killing machine. There's people that say, well, maybe he didn't really die. Can I just tell you, the Romans were really good at killing. Super good at it. Crucifixion itself is the most gruesome way to die because they use it as a deterrent for other people rebelling. 
So they come up with this particularly gruesome way to die. And not only that, they know what death is. And this is what John is pointing out. When they took that spear, what they did is they jammed it up into, so they're catching the lower cavity and the upper cavity with it. They're making sure that you're being killed. Okay? They pierce him through, and when it comes up, the reason for the water and the blood is medical people will tell you, if you stab a, a person that hadn't, if you stab a person that has, their heart has given out and it's blown up essentially, when the spear goes in there, what comes out is water and blood because blood has filled the upper cavity and leaked into the lower cavity to some extent. So it's the water, the normal fluids, and blood. It's not bleeding that he's talking about there. What they're, what, he, what they're saying is, and the reason why John's bringing it up, people know about death. They're not stupid medically. And what they're doing is, is they're saying, look, water and blood came out. That means he was dead. His heart is not beating. It had, it had stopped and the blood had seeped into his cavities. This guy was dead. And then look what John says. and Look at the way he says it. Look, he who saw this, that's John, testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true. He knows he's telling the truth. Do you see what John's doing? Believe me, trust me. The people are going around saying that he didn't die. I saw it. <laughs> I was standing right there when it happened with Mary. This guy was dead. These things happened and confirmed the scripture. Not a bone in his body was broken. There's another nice little detail for you. The two other people with him were, did have bones broken, and he did not. And the other scripture that reads, they will stare at the one they've pierced. <laughs> Again, this eyewitness account. This isn't vague. This is specific. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. We thought it was him that was up there being crucified. That's what the people of the day thought. That's what people still today think. There must have been something wrong and he did something and that's why he's up there. But we understand something different who have come to know him. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. Can I just tell you something? What a nonsensical word that is. How, how does somebody may be made whole by beating the crap out of somebody else? How does that happen? How do I get healed by somebody else being crushed? This does not make any sense. Do you see it? This doesn't fit anything else. If you take Christ out of history and there is no death, burial, and resurrection, these words make no sense. It is not possible. There's nobody else in all of history who by getting beat up and being crushed somehow made other people whole and healed them. <laughs> and yet I stand here right now and so do a lot of other people in this room and a couple of billion people throughout, well, more than that now, throughout all of human history saying, I get exactly what that means. Because man, when he took that on himself and I accepted it, I received it, it made me whole. I didn't know that I was missing anything. But then I accepted him and my eyes were opened. I was blind, the song says, and now I see. And all of a sudden it was like, I'm whole and I'm healed. Can I just say something? My brother's sitting here right now. I just want to testify to what a, I want to say a bad word so I won't say it because it's a mixed crowd. If it was just this body, I would say it, okay? But I love you and I don't want to shock you or anything else. I, wanted to, I was a jerk, okay? I was a bad person and I was headed a bad way. Now, I wasn't an evil person in the way that a lot of people would think about evil, but I was not a good person and I was not headed in a good way. 
And when Jesus saved me, I was saved for myself. And I do want to say that anybody who would have looked at me at that point in time would not have said that I was a terrible jerk. They would have said I was very egotistical and they would have said other things about me. But I was just a normal person for them that had a lot of advantages and had a lot of good things going for them. That's what they would have said about me. That's what most people did say about me. And then he saved me from myself. And I was healed <laughs> and I was made whole. These words mean something and we're supposed to be pondering them. All of us like sheep have strayed away. You've heard me say this, right? This is what he's saying. See, in this thing, he's talking about we made a decision to go our own way. See, we've left God's path to follow our own. Do you see that? <laughs> I wasn't making that up. That wasn't metaphor earlier when I was talking about it. This is what he says was going on. We went our own way. When we talk, can I just say something? You can preach the whole of the Gospels right here from these verses. <laughs> Do you see this? Everything that's in the Gospels, right here. This, this tells you everything. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him, on Jesus, God the Father, laid on the Son the sins of us all. I hope I've explained that enough to where even if you don't know him, at least you know what's being said here now. He was oppressed and treated harshly. He never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before shears, he did not open his mouth. What does that mean? Real simple. Here's what it means. He didn't defend himself. He didn't try and talk, him, didn't try and talk his way out of it. You see it? He didn't say, oh, no, 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 you don't, you don't understand. No, it really was like this. Or no, it really, he didn't equivocate. He didn't do anything. What he did was is he knew that this was the Father's will. Do remember something about Jesus. See, we say... In our world, there's more than one way to God. All religions lead to God. That's the popular thing to say, right? You do realize that Jesus said that at one point, right? Not like that. Here's what he said. Right before he went through all of this stuff, he's in the garden. And what he says is, is, I'm just about to have to experience something that I do not want to experience. I'm about to experience, now what? The beatings? He didn't want to experience those for sure. But what was he really concerned about? When he's on that cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A moment of separation, him who has been eternally one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one who has been eternally one is experiencing a separation and understand something, all the beatings, all of the physical things that were done to him, the spittings, the beatings, the crowns, the whipping where it was cat of nine tails that ripped skin off of him, all of that stuff speaks to, in the physical way that we can understand the depth of what he was going through in the Spirit. He did not want to go this way. Don't you think if Hinduism really did lead you to God, God would have said, you don't have to go to the cross. You just have to do this other reincarnation thing. Don't you think if there was some other way that God would have not put himself through it? It wasn't just somebody. It was himself. <laughs> if there was some other way, he would have done it. <laughs> And so what Jesus did was, is he stayed in that garden until he could receive it, until he could stand before it and not open his mouth and not defend himself. Because this, when he says open his mouth, do you remember something? He could have done this. He told them, he said, don't you know that right now I could open my mouth and I could call on God and he would send 12 legions of angels to me, roughly 6,000 people in a legion. So 72,000 angels to deliver me. 
It took him all, it took him all that time praying so hard that it was sweat and drops as, as blood. It was him praying that he would not open his mouth and that he would not defend himself and that he would not call rescue upon himself, but instead he would do, even in this thing, the thing that the Father wanted and not what he wanted. Isn't that... Unjustly condemned, he was led away. Pilate himself says, I do not understand what is going on here, and I'm telling you, I'm no party to it. I'm going to go ahead and release him to you because I'm afraid of the riot, but I wash my hands of this. And he washes his hands of it. He says, this is not on me. No one cared that he died without descendants. That will become really important in a moment, bookmark it, that his life was cut short in midstream. Jesus, God, died alone. There were not thousands of people saying, this is unjust, this is unfair. There were not even 12 disciples that had walked with him at that cross saying, this is not right. There was one disciple who was there with Jesus' mother. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down from the rebellion of whose people? Now, now, look at this. My people. We make the choice to go away from him, and he does not quit calling us his own. <laughs> we choose to go away, and he's saying, I'll redeem. I'll bring back. And he's telling us how he's going to do this right now, 600 years before Christ even is. He had done no wrong, had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. Details. Eyewitness details, right? With criminals being buried like a criminal. Except there's this little detail that's in there that's kind of interesting. Said 600 years before him because he died like a criminal and he was being buried like a criminal, but then he got put into a rich man's grave. How do you orchestrate that beyond your death? He was put in a rich man's grave. Joseph of Arimathea comes, a rich, wealthy man, and asks for the body. And he puts him into a rich man's grave. It was God's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. Okay. That is a nonsensical statement if there is no Jesus in the, in the course of human history. That is a complete nonsense. How is it a good plan to crush somebody? <laughs> How? Tell me another situation where that makes sense. That is not a good plan. That's a bad plan. Bad things happen to good people. People that do belong in jail don't end up there, and people that don't belong there do. That happens in the world. But that's not a good plan. <laughs> that's the bad stuff. <laughs> the recorded words of Jesus are, it is accomplished. What does that mean? What does it mean? What was accomplished? Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he'll have many descendants. You can't have descendants if you're cut off before you've had children. You cannot have descendants. Period. You can't. Right? You can have people that believe in you, but they're not your descendants. Jesus has actual descendants. He has breathed into me and made me 
a new nature, a new spirit. He has connected me. I am his child. He has descendants. In fact, he has a multitude, a sea of people who have come to see this, and that sea is made up of Becca Webers <laughs> and of Roger Maddox's and of Eric Lee's and of Barb Bloomstrand's and of Michelle Huskins. That's who he died for. That's his descendants. That's how you can die without having children and still have descendants. <laughs> and not just that one. He's going to enjoy a long life. No, he's not. He just died. <laughs> it wasn't long. He was cut off in midstream. 33. That's not long. How can you possibly have a long life? Oops. Uh, uh, my fault. can have a long life when you've died and that's to come back from life and I want to show you that verifiably at least 200 years and more like 600 years before there was even a Christ God clearly said that he would die and rise again you don't have to figure it out it's right there plainly stated and by the way for those of you who would like extra evidence on this, please look into the latest findings by the Vatican scientists on the Shroud of Turin. Because there was a, they've now completely disproved that theory that you may have heard about it being, from, being a forgery. They've completely ruled that out. And the only explanation that the Vatican says, now the Vatican would have a dog in this fight, but the scientists that work on it that are not Christians, they say we cannot explain how this is and the most logical explanation for it is a resurrection type moment. It's the only thing. We do not know what that was. We do not know how that was and so on. But I just want you to understand, look, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in Jesus' hands. When the Father sees all that is accomplished by Jesus' anguish, the Father will be satisfied. And because of Jesus' experience, my righteous servant 
will make it possible for many to be counted right. My servant who was standing right with me at every moment will make it possible for many sons and daughters, many brothers and sisters to stand right with me. For he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. Jesus was counted among the rebels, us. He bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. So we're ending now with this. That's an incredible passage. Well, I'm just about to show it to you all put together because I took it apart and it was kind of like a long time from the beginning till now. I'm sorry about that, but okay. But I'm going to put this together and I'm going to let these words be read. It's a different translation, so don't get hung up on these using different words. I just used one that was a little more accessible for us. But this is a very literal, they're, they're both very, you know, they're, they're saying the same thing. And I'm going to, what I want you to do is, I want you to have these words to wash over you. I want you to do what it says at the beginning of this chapter. Consider, you want proof. Has the Lord proved it to you? He's saying he has. So you want proof, he's telling you, here's my proof. Right here. I want you to ponder this. I want you to consider it. Is it true? Is it real? And if it is, then do something about it, right? Receive what he's done. Understand. Now, this is not just for people who need proof because they don't believe. This is for people who do believe and still need proof. This is for people that know him and are in a place to where you've forgotten his power, to where you've forgotten the depths of his power, to where you've forgotten the magnificence of what it is that he has done for you, the depths to which he has gone to, the way in which he has done it, the revelation of a strong right arm that he's trying to get us to understand so that we will trust him. So like I say, whether you know him or not, I'm asking you to, just in an almost prayerful moment, you can go ahead and watch the images, but in a prayerful moment, I want you to let the words of this one little passage, which we have verified was beforehand, we have verified that it was detailed in ways that are impossible, and thus it was real, it has the fullness of the meaning in it, and it simply doesn't fit anybody but Christ. So let God's proof flow over you. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. 
Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Close your eyes, would you? If you're here and you've never understood all these things, welcome to a big club. Many of us didn't and came to know it at some point in our life. And I want to suggest to you strongly that this is your moment. This is your time when he is asking you to consider, to ponder, and to respond. And I would ask you that if you want to respond, if you want to say, yes, I see it now and I get it. I may not understand the fullness of it or anything else, but I can, I understand what this is about and, and I see that this is God trying to speak to me to receive him, that he might teach me and lead me into all these things. If you're saying that, I want you to raise your hand. Everybody keep your heads down. Don't look around, please. Even if you came with somebody you're hoping would raise your hand. Don't look around. Let this be just a moment, would you please? I want you to raise your hands and I want you to, to look at me. Thank you for that. Thank you, who else? Thank you for that, thank you for that. Who else, there are others. Just be responsive. This is a moment that we'll come back. Have it to come back in glory because you said yes. And not in pain because you missed. And I don't mean to put an inappropriate pressure on you, but this stuff is important. This is an incredibly important moment. There are people that love you and that want you to come to know the technicolor richness of life that God has. And so I'm asking you at this moment, raise your hand. If your heart is beating, thank you for that. If your heart is beating hard, that's probably a pretty good indicator. Don't be the stubborn one. Be the one who says yes. Who else? Jesus' name. Thank you. I just don't want to let this moment pass too quickly. I want to give you every opportunity, as does Christ. Is there anybody else? Thank you, Lord. Even if you knew you should have raised your hand and you didn't, what will happen after the service is there will be people up in front here and the, the prayer team and the respected people who can, 
who can help you and just pray with you and it's not embarrassing. They will love on you and, and give you a Bible and do all kinds of stuff. So I want you to come forward in the service. But before we open our eyes, I want to do a second altar call. And that is, who in here would raise your hands and say, I really needed to hear that God was truly in control like this. I really needed to hear this again. I need to be restored. I need to be set back again on a firm foundation. Somehow I've slipped from it a bit. And I need to be restored into this firm foundation of God. Thank you for so many hands going up. Thank you for this. This is really between the Lord and you, but it's important to be able to make this moment, to, to, to say yes to it before it can slip away. You're going to go to an Easter lunch and things are going to get crowded out. You're going to forget all about it. If you make a commitment right now, if you make a statement right now, that'll be something that you can hang your hat on that God can use. So are there any other hands now? Thank you for those that are going up. Now for you too, I want to say, come forward. There's going to be people up here in the prayer team, you know who you are, and if you weren't on the prayer team today, but you're on the prayer team, come forward. There's a lot of hands that came up, and you don't have to come forward for prayer, but I would suggest that you do again to cement something, to plant something, to get that seed planted in this good soil in a good way. I'll be up here too. You can come to me or any of them. I'm not better than anybody else here. I'm just another schmuck who, by God's grace, has been saved. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, I want to say thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I just realized I'm doing an altar call, and there's probably supposed to be a song by the worship team. Would you guys do me a favor? Just come up and kind of play in the background. I'm sorry. I know you had a worship song, and I apologize, but I'd rather just stick with the altar call if that's okay with you. Okay? So you can go ahead and come up and just kind of do something. All right? Sorry. I'm sure, I'm sure I messed you up. But Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, as the, as the worship team comes forward, as the prayers come forward, and even as some people sort of work their way out of their seats to come forward to receive prayer, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I'm asking you that you would take every person here and that you would renew in us a firm foundation, that you would restore unto us a first love, that you would bring us even into a first love. Thank you, God, for making yourself known so clearly, so incredibly, so compellingly. In Jesus' holy and precious name. I love you. Have a spectacular Easter. Is there a word? You want to give a word? Go ahead. I, I feel somewhat um, compelled in, in the spirit of the Lord to, uh, to say there's, there's chains and shackles and perhaps you think God brought you to a place of chains and shackles and he is not. This message this morning was to tell us that he has set us free from those things. He has not come dragging us and, um, and pulling us. He has set us free from the chains and the shackles. And he's giving us life. In fact, there's a, there's a river that's, that's pouring into your soul perhaps right now that you know is freedom and you're afraid to jump in. God says, jump in. He has set you free because he was not the one that put those things on you. It was something else. It was someone else. And he has set you free to swim in the river of salvation. He has set you free. I just want to say clearly
that if you're, you know, bef I was in chains and shackles and had no idea that that's what I was in. I've come to know it. So, okay, do you have a word too? Okay. There is communion there before us. I forgot.